Well, beloved, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Our passage is taken from Acts chapter 14, verses 1 through 28. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly before the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. And when that says apostles, just briefly, that's that's talking about the sent ones from the church of Syria, Antioch, not uppercase apostles, although we know Paul is one of those. Verse 5, when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, the cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Now, at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priests of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news." that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without a witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for themselves in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Adaliah, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended by the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. 
And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. Indeed, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. May he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. Please pray with me. Our gracious Heavenly Father, as we take time now to consider this first missionary journey that Paul and Barnabas went on, we ask that you would encourage us and strengthen us, and that we might see the gospel held high and Christ victorious over all things. We give you praise for this, and we ask that you would open our hearts and our minds so that we might understand who you are better. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, not too long ago, I just finished reading a wonderful book that my father had recommended to me called Failure is Not an Option. It's a book that was written by Gene Krantz, and it covers the history of NASA and how NASA really began. It starts with all of the missions that took place um, under the Mercury capsule program on through the Apollo program. And in particular, what this book shows is the perseverance of the men and women as they tried to achieve what seemed to be impossible. Space exploration in the 50s and 60s was something brand new and unheard of. And it was in 1961 when JFK was raising money for the NASA program that he gave a speech down in Houston at Rice University. And this speech is really what stirred up in the men and women of NASA the attitude that failure would not be an option. I want to read a little bit of this speech for you. And I'm not from Kennebunkport, so you're going to have to imagine JFK reading it, because I can't do that accent. He said this, But why, some may ask, the moon? Why choose this as our goal? As they may well ask, why climb the highest mountain? Or why 35 years ago fly across the Atlantic? Well, we choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and to do other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. Because that challenge is one that we are willing to accept, one we are unwilling to postpone, and one which we intend to win. But if we, if I were to say to you, my fellow citizens, that we shall send to the moon, 240,000 miles away from the control station in Houston, a giant rocket that is more than 300 feet tall, made of new metal alloys, some of which have not yet been invented, capable of standing the heat and stresses several times more than have ever been experienced, fitted together with such precision that it is better than the finest watch made, carrying all the equipment needed for propulsion, guidance, control, communication, food, and survival on an untried mission to an unknown celestial body, and then to return it safely to Earth, re-entering the atmosphere at speeds of over 25,000 miles per hour, causing heat about half that of the temperature of our sun, and do all of this, and do it right, and do it first, before this decade is out, then we must be bold. That was the challenge that JFK put before the men and women working for NASA. Put boots on the moon before the decade is over. And for the next eight or nine years, 
the men and women at NASA showed great perseverance as they accomplished what seemed to be impossible. And there were so many different challenges that came before them on the way. Things they never thought they would experience, whether it was the death of certain astronauts on the pad and in space, the loss of communication. There were moments in time, as you read through this book, it's amazing to read how they had no idea how to solve problems and everyone would come in the room together and wrestle with it and figure something out. And ultimately, it kind of culminates on July 24th, 1969, when Apollo 11 lands on the moon and Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin jump out and plant the American flag there. They did what seemed to be impossible. And Kennedy, when he's finishing that speech that he's giving, he says, space is there and we are going to climb it. The moon and the planets are there and new hopes for knowledge and peace are there and therefore as we set sail, we ask God's blessing on the most hazardous and dangerous and greatest adventure, adventure in which man has ever embarked. Failure was not an option. And what we see in Acts is that that great achievement of man pales in comparison to the first missionary journey that was sent out from the Syrian church, the Syrian church in Antioch. When Paul and Barnabas would go out and say, failure is not an option. That could really be the title of the book of Acts. Failure is not an option. And so as we're looking at this, it's helpful to know the context just a little bit. The first missionary journey was a year and a half long. And everything starts out great. In chapter 13 of Acts, Paul and Barnabas, they set out with John Mark, and they go to the island of Cyprus, and they're leading all sorts of people to Christ, and there doesn't seem to be any issues. Even, even they're leading, you know, Gentiles to Christ, such as the proconsul Sergius uh, Paulus, who David had talked about last week. And it's just going smooth as can be. But after John Mark leaves and Paul and Barnabas continue on, they arrive in Pisidian Antioch. And in arriving at Pisidian Antioch, they go to the synagogue, they proclaim the gospel. Paul gives a wonderful wonderful sermon in which he explains from the Old Testament how Christ is the fulfillment of it. And it says that there are many Jews and many Gentiles who come to faith and they beg Paul and Barnabas to come back the next Sabbath and to teach it again. And word gets out through the city for that entire week that Paul is going to preach. And it says that the entire city is pretty much gathered at Pisidian Antioch at this, at this Sabbath, at this synagogue. And when Paul begins to preach, it says the Jews grew jealous and envious of the crowds that were following them. And they began to create all sorts of problem. And there's great division in Pisidian Antioch. And really, Paul and Barnabas are forced to flee and to leave. And so they head 80 miles southeast to the city of Iconium, which is where Acts chapter 14 picks up. And the exact same thing happens. The pattern for these early missionary journeys was for Paul and for Barnabas to go to the synagogue first, preach the gospel because they were kind of on level ground with one another. The people had an understanding of the Old Testament. And so they would go there first and they would proclaim the gospel and they would explain that Jesus is fulfillment of the Old Testament. And then you see that there are many people who come to faith. And when they're in Iconium and many people come to faith, we read in verse 2 
that the unbelieving Jews who were there stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their hearts and minds against the brothers. But failure was not an option. Paul and Barnabas remained for a long time, and they continued to preach the gospel. And God granted many signs and wonders by their hands, so that in this city of Iconium, eventually we get to the point where it's divided in two. There are those who agree with the Jews who do not believe, and there are those who agree with the, the apostles. And a plot is formed to have Paul and Barnabas mistreated or abused and then put to death by stoning. And Paul knew all about stoning. He was there, he approved of, he presided over the stoning of Stephen. Who knows how many other stonings of Christians he had presided over during his persecution. And so Paul and Barnabas, they don't want any part of that, and they leave. And in verse 8, we read that they come to this little backwater town called Lystra. And when they get to Lystra, it doesn't seem to be a synagogue. We don't know if there was a synagogue there or not. But what we read in verse 8 is that while they were there, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet, who had been born a cripple. And he was listening to Paul speaking, and Paul looking intently at him by the power of the Holy Spirit. I mean, there's no other real explanation to how he would know this. He sees the man who's listening and judges that this man has faith to be healed. And Paul tells him to get up and walk, and the man springs to his feet and does so. This is reminiscent of Acts chapter 3. If we were doing a study on the whole book of Acts, this goes back to when Peter is in Jerusalem. He's preaching the gospel. He recognizes, he sees, he looks intently at a man who was born a cripple who had never walked, sees that he has faith. He says, be made well, stand up. The man does. And the crowds in Jerusalem cry out praise to Yahweh God Almighty. That's not what happens in Lystra. The context is, is very different. Paul and Barnabas, this is going on. Paul heals this man, and the crowds start crying out in their own language, a language that Paul and Barnabas likely don't understand. They start crying out in Lyconian, the gods have come down and visited us. They've come disguised as men. See, in Lystra, it was well known, and we know this from a lot of different archaeological facts, that these people were all in on the gods of Greek mythology, in particular Zeus and Hermes. And so these people who had grown up, had been raised generation after generation after generation to worship the gods of Zeus and Hermes and all the other Greek mythological figures, they attribute this miracle to them. And they are so excited. And if you're Paul and Barnabas, this is a little bit awkward because all this is being said and you're not sure what's going on because you don't speak the language. But pretty soon, word gets out at the gates of the city to the priest of Zeus. And when he hears what's going on, he begins to prepare a sacrifice. He gets the oxen, he puts them in the ceremonial wreaths, he brings them to the gates of the city, and it's right around then when someone finally explains to Paul and Barnabas what's going on. And our text says that when they heard what was about to happen, they were horrified. Because there was about to be a heinous sin committed in the city of, of Lystra. They were about to commit blasphemy as they sacrificed to Paul and Barnabas. 
men who were there to proclaim the good news of Yahweh God Almighty and the person of Jesus. They were going to sacrifice to them. And so Paul and Barnabas do the only thing they know what, how to do. They go running into the crowd. They tear their garments. And they say, men of Lystra, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? We have flesh and bone just like you. We aren't gods in disguise. In fact, the gods that you have worshipped your whole life do not exist. Look at verses 14 or 15 and 16. Paul and Barnabas go running down, and Paul, who's the main speaker, is saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God, the God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. I mean, talk about uncomfortable. Paul is deconstructing their worldview. He is coming in and saying that everything your fathers, 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 fathers have taught you over time has been a lie. But now, in God's good timing, he's brought us to reveal to you the truth of who he is and what he's done. The fact of the matter is, you've been without excuse because he had left a witness for himself. Look at verse 16. In past generations, the Lord had allowed the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven, fruitful seasons to satisfy your hearts with food and with gladness. This message that Paul is giving, I mean, it's the, it's the gospel in seed form to a degree. I mean, he's, he's meeting these people where they're at. Paul and Barnabas are on the doorstep of the most pagan nation in the world that, they, that they've come to so far on mission. And so they come and they start, you know, bringing forward the truth and how the truth takes away all these false beliefs that they've had in the past. This would have been earth-shattering to these Greeks to have been told that their whole way of life was built on lies. And it's the first time in history that they would have heard the gospel of Jesus. And what Paul is saying is that you don't realize how good you've had it over these years. You know, in Acts chapter 17, he says the same thing when he's at the Areopagus before another completely Gentile audience. When he says the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he had fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man who he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. He's saying God has withheld his wrath all these years from you. But those days are over. Now you are here and you are hearing the gospel. Turn and repent from the false gods you've been following and look to the living God. So Paul gives this speech, and you feel like it's all set up for this entire city to come to faith. But what Luke records next isn't that at all. Look at verse 18. Luke writes, Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. And then you cue the music for the antagonist to come in. You know, like Vader's march. Here comes Darth Vader into the camera scene. And this isn't, 
you know, whether it's immediately after this is happening or if it's a few days later, it doesn't really matter. What we have recorded is so interesting and, and terrifying, really, for Paul. The Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and they persuaded the crowds so that they could stone Paul, and then they dragged him out of the city, presuming he was dead. So here come the Jews who are so angry with, with the gospel, with the church, with what Paul and Barnabas have been preaching, that they've been willing to follow them for a hundred miles, hot on their tail, ready to put an end to these troublemakers. And while we don't know what they say to the crowd, you can kind of imagine what might be going on. They come in and they say, oh, men of Lystra, you don't understand what has happened everywhere these two men have gone. Everywhere they go, they are rabble-rousers. Everywhere they go, they cause division and dissension. And everywhere they go is trouble. So we're here to put an end to them. Because if we don't, then Rome might step in. And so you can imagine how that, something like that could be very appealing to the people who are hearing this from, from the, these Jews. And they say, do your business. We don't want Rome coming in. You do your business and take care of Paul and Barnabas. And Paul is almost put to death by stoning. One of the most gruesome, painful, heartbreaking acts of capital punishment that could be done. You know, in Lystra, where they are, they're in the mountains. It's an arid climate. There are no trees. All there really is is rock. And the people are picking up these stones. And the whole purpose of stoning, I did an interesting little study on stoning this week was to inflict as much pain and suffering as possible while prolonging the death. They didn't want it to be a quick death, but they also didn't want it to be a short death. And so Paul would have been experiencing bones breaking, flesh tearing, until he finally falls unconscious. And they drag his body out of the city, and they leave him there for the birds, basically. And when the disciples gather around Paul after this horrible thing, Luke says he rises up and he goes back into the city. And then the next day, he and Barnabas go on to the city of Derby. And when they go to Derby, they proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there are many who come to faith and believe. Failure was not an option for Paul and Barnabas. Even after almost being put to death, he is willing to go to the next city and proclaim the gospel of Jesus. And while that's amazing, what happens next is even greater. Paul and Barnabas, when they're in Derby, the opportunity is there for them to continue south and east and go to Paul's hometown of Lys or to Tarsus, and then from there return to the home church at Syria, Antioch. It's not that far of a journey. It would have been easy for them to do, and Paul maybe even would have wanted to go home and proclaim the gospel. But instead of doing that, they turn around and they go back. They go back first to Lystra, where Paul had been left for dead and had been stoned. 
Then they go back to Iconium, where they had been chased out and where the people had plotted and planned to stone them. And they go back to Antioch. And that is immensely encouraging to us. One reason that's encouraging to us that Paul and Barnabas went back is the fact that you wouldn't do something like that unless what you believed was absolutely true. You wouldn't be willing to go back into that kind of environment and preach and teach the same sort of thing unless it was absolutely true. And so that's encouraging. But also what's encouraging is what we see or the reason we see for why they went back. Look at verse 22. Paul and Barnabas, they go back in order to strengthen the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. What's so encouraging about that is that Paul and Barnabas and the other apostles, if we continue reading in the book of Acts all the things that they experience, all the things that they go through, they knew that tribulation was part and parcel of the Christian life. And if they could endure the kind of suffering that they did, if Paul could endure a stoning to the point of death and yet press on and continue, then that means in our own suffering, we can press on and continue in faith. To a degree, it is a greater comparison to a lesser. I mean, if you jump to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul records all that he suffered for the sake of Jesus. He writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was set adrift. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and in thirst, often without, full, without food, in cold and exposure. That's what Paul went through for the sake of Jesus Christ. He endured those things. He persevered to the end. And he did so knowing that through many tribulations, there is a great end. We come to the kingdom of God. We get to enter in. It's not that those things are what allows him to enter in, but it's that he knows there's an end to the race that he is running. And so this puts our own trials into perspective just a little bit that despite great opposition, God's word increases, and even though we face tribulations and difficulties, whether it be things like, you know, a bad diagnosis or problems in our marriage, or if we're having difficulties at work or we lose a loved one, things are hard at school, or we have trouble with friends and family, we can persevere, endure, and endure to the end because we've been given the same spirit that was in Paul. The Holy Spirit is there to encourage us and strengthen us as we press on. This is so encouraging that by the grace of God, we can persevere in our trials like they did. Failure is not an option in the Christian life. 
But thankfully, it's not because of what we do, but because of what Christ has done. Paul's message is the same as what's preached in John 16, when Jesus said to the disciples, in this world, you are going to have tribulations, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So when we are facing trials of all sorts of kinds, let's look to Christ and trust in him and persevere to the end. Amen.